0: real quick as we step into the word and, and go to revelations. We're going to continue in Revelation 7. Let's just pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your presence. Thank, we, thank you. We love you. We love to see you working. And God, I just pray that you would fill our minds and that you'd send a spirit of revelation into us, that you would take the word and that you would make it real to us and that we would walk it out and live it and become it. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study of Revelations, uh, the book of Revelation, in the Passion Translation following along with Brian Simmons' study and interpretation of it. And last week we finished up chapter 6 of Revelation. And we've been walking through looking at it. We've seen it, Revelation, as I say every single week, is the unveiling of Jesus, right? It's not the unveiling of the Antichrist, it's not unveiling of the end times, it is the unveiling of Jesus himself. And it, this is actually even the revelation that Jesus had that the Father gave him, it says it in verse 1. And as we've been walking through looking at it, we're taking it of perspective as Jesus always taught in pictures and parables and that we see that this is the revelation of Jesus, and that it was symbolized to John to give to the church. And so that we actually are going through looking at the symbolic pictures and images that it paints for us with the perspective of interpreting it through the rest of the Bible. You, the Old Testament basically gives us the full format of understanding revelation. So instead of it being Jesus coming to blow up a billion people before his wedding, it's actually him coming to kill the flesh and to bring life to his bride. And so we've been going through and we've, we've followed along. And in chapter 6, we began to look at the seven-sealed scroll. And we looked at the four horsemen when those seals were broken. And the picture is that we are that scroll that the lamb paid the great price for. And the seals, when they're broken off in unison, one after another, are actually revelations and realities that Jesus wants to release into us in bringing forth the fullness and the price that he paid. And so we looked at four horsemen, and then we looked at the fifth seal being broken off of the souls under the altar that had died to the works of the flesh, and now we're crying out to God that he would vindicate them and send revival in his outpouring. And then we looked at the sixth seal. Now, and then we're going to read chapter 7. Basically what this is doing is 1 through 6. Are showing these seals. The seal gets broken off, and it shows what happens when that seal is broken off. So you've got, you know, the horsemen. You've got that white horse coming to conquer you, to conquer everything that conquers you. You've got the horse coming to burn and purify everything off. You've got the black horse coming to kill the flesh and to bring into life the the, uh, the life of Christ in you. And then we get into the fifth seal, and it is actually showing us a reality of our position in heaven. Of crying out to God. And then the sixth seal is where it's showing that God wants to shake every foundation, every reality, everything in your world and bring forth his passionate love that chases you down. Right? And then when we go to chapter seven and continue on, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Interpreters and scholars and stuff have. Uh, marveled about chapter 7 because it seems pretty quick. Okay, it shows the seal and it shows the repercussion. But then chapter 7, it goes on and it shows all this stuff. And some people have even said, which I think is stupid, but some people have even said, oh, well, John got distracted for a little bit and started talking about things. Whatever. Okay. You're a great interpreter. Whatever. Now, um, so, he, uh, but he goes on, and he begins to paint these pictures of the 144,000 sealed with God. And he paints these pictures of these four angels in the winds. And then he goes into, which is funny, in that last song of the whole myriads of uh, the people clothed in white. And he, and he describes all of this stuff. And then he goes into the seventh seal, the last one. He takes like a whole chapter off to describe these things but I don't believe he was getting distracted and I don't believe he got off course. I believe it was in reality is that he was showing that when Jesus gets a hold of that scroll, which is you, and he begins to release these re- realities into you, his goal and his purpose is to bring forth what we see here in 6 and in 7 and continued. Is that is His goal is to release these realities into you, to release these things, and this is what it, it brings forth what we see here. Okay? So what I want to do is I'm going to read basically all of chapter 7. Now, we won't get to all of chapter 7, but we'll read it all for the sake of it. So, we'll begin chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they were restraining the four winds, so that the wind would not blow on the land on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have marked the loving servants of God with a seal on their foreheads. And I discovered the number of those who were sealed. It was 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of Israel's people. And it goes and lists on 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Judah, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And after this, I looked and behold, and right in front of me, I saw a vast multitude of people. This is what we just heard. An enormous multitude, so huge that no one could count, made up of victorious ones from every nation, tribe, people group, and language. They were all glistening in white robes, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, with palm branches in their hands. And they shouted out with a passionate voice, Salvation belongs to our God, seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing in a circle around the throne with the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these in glistening white robes, and where have they come from? And I answered, my Lord, you must know. Then he said to me, they are the ones who have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the lamb and have emerged from the midst of great pressure and ordeal. For this reason, they are before For the throne of God, ministering to Him as priests day and night within His cloud-filled sanctuary, and the enthroned One spreads over them His tabernacle shelter. Their souls will be completely satisfied, and neither the sun nor any scorching heat will affect them, for the Lamb at the center of the throne continuously shepherds them unto life, giving, guiding them to the everlasting fountains of water of life, and God will wipe away from their eyes every last tear. So, that is chapter 7. And as we walk into this, we see four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, it says. And they are restraining the four winds so that the wind would not blow on the land or the sea or the trees or these things. Okay? And so, it's an interesting picture these four angels, and they're actually restraining, keeping something back. And what's interesting is, they're restraining this wind until, right? They're restraining the wind until the servants of God are sealed on the forehead with the seal of this angel, the fifth angel coming out of the east. Okay, what does that mean? Well, It's kind of, it's a little bit, you're like, man, when you read that, you go, okay. The first question we have to ask is, what is this wind that they're holding back? So, as everything, we're looking at the the pictures and the images of heaven interpreting what God is doing. And so you go, what is this wind? Well, I believe that the wind is actually judgment, particularly particularly. Because Jeremiah 49, 36, actually speaks about, Jeremiah says, he speaks of four winds blowing on whatever, some weird kingdom's name that I can't pronounce, you know what I mean? <laughs> One of those things. But he's talking about the four winds, and it's in the context that judgment is going to be poured out against this nation, Right? It's, it's, a, it's just a small little verse, but it's interesting. But he talks about the four winds of judgment. It's under that context. And you see, now, wind can be good or bad, depending on how it's used, but it can also be really destructive. And, we, and I see it as judgment. Is that, and, it's in, and the angels are holding this thing back, put, creating a period and a time of grace. Right? Right? until the servants get this seal. Okay. Before we can get into really what that is saying, we have to define a few things. Okay? So you get me. You go, okay, uh, okay, I'm, uh, maybe if you're tracking with me, maybe you're like, okay, let's call, call this judgment, and it's holding this back until a period of time. But the problem I have is this. When I say judgment, and you think of judgment from God, you may not be thinking actually the biblical definition of it. You may be thinking of man's interpretation of an angry God. So the problem is this, we have men and women that have had the picture that God is mad and angry at us and he really, he wants to pour judgment out on us so bad and he's just looking for us to slip up. Or if he can just get enough wrong with us, man, he can smite you, you know? And by golly, his son got in the way of it. You know, like, I mean, we've got sermons about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And we've got this whole perspective. We have fire in this brimstone of this angry God trying to get you. Okay? The problem is, is that is not really the perspective that the Bible pours out through It is, I mean, it was God's plan for Jesus to die so that he wouldn't have to, so that we wouldn't suffer, right? It was because of his love. And this is the same God that says, man, I want to work all things together for your good. And I am for you, not against you, right? He's not this one that's going, oh man, if my son hadn't got in there and paid for your sin, I would have busted you, you know? That's not the perspective of God in the Bible, Because Jesus, it says that Jesus was the perfect representation of who God was. Nobody had perfectly represented to the world who God was. And so Jesus said, I'm going to come and show them what God is like and give them a blueprint of how to live at the same time. And in that, we see Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus and tell me that God is mad and angry and trying to just blow you off the face of the earth. He painted a picture of, no, this is what I'm saying. He took the woman who was found in adultery. He didn't condemn her. And he said, just go sin no more. He, he extended mercy. And like uh, the message that dad gave a few weeks ago, as we walked through and looked, that it was actually every time it is God's desire to extend mercy. Right? And so the pictures that we have of God... Are, are, are these mad, angry, fiery things. But in reality in the Bible we see these perspectives being changed of he's actually loving and caring and when these things happen it, is not, it shouldn't be attributed to God. It should be attributed to the kingdom of darkness. Right? When We, we see sickness and pain and suffering and, and, and these things and we should go that is not the kingdom of God. I think it is a A a terrible thing to attribute what Satan is giving you to God, right? So our perspectives of judgment can be totally wrong. Let me, let me paint a few pictures of what the Bible says about God's judgment. So let's read let's adapt this a little bit. In 1 Chronicles 16, 31 through 34, this is David speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'll read it to you. He says, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord. Listen to this. For he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his love endures forever. Mind you, If our image of judgment is what's coming, then why are the trees and the seas and the land rejoicing? If it's our pictures of God going, "Whoa, I'm going to rain down some fire now, I'm going to send some judgment, then they in reality would be like, ah, screaming and running and wilting and crying, right? (laughs) That the trees should be crying, not rejoicing, because when God releases his judgments, it's good. Because, in Isaiah 26, verse 9, it says, when you, this is God, it's talking about God, when you you display your judgments on the earth, people learn the ways of righteousness. When God releases his judgments, people actually learn to be righteous. You see, Jesus, when he came, He did not say, repent, for wrath of God is coming. What did Jesus actually say? Repent, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand, so you've got to change the way you're thinking. You've got to change. He didn't say, you better change, or fiery mad God's coming for you. He said, the kingdom's coming, repent. He said, and in Romans, it tells us that what leads us to repentance? The goodness of God. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. The goodness of God brings you to this change. Repent. The kingdom is coming. What is the kingdom? It's righteousness, peace, and joy. So he was telling them, you better repent because righteousness, peace, and joy is coming. And the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And when God pours out his judgments, people learn righteousness and the whole earth rejoices. So the judgments of God are a good thing. And we should change our perspective. Here's the deal. When a judge stands or sits on his stand of judgment, what that means is he's going to release a verdict. And and that verdict can be really good for us if he's a good judge, right? I'm not saying we're trying to sway him or convince him to do one way or the other. We're not trying to convince God of anything. But it it even says that God is a just judge. And so if, if we see God as judge in this context, When that judge comes, when he releases his judgments, he is going to release good things according to what you're under. You see, if we are under the blood, uh, think about it. What was all of the Old Testament ways of the sacrifice trying to show us? There had to be payment for sin, right? Well, Jesus paid for it. So when we actually apply the blood of Jesus to our lives, and we actually are under that blood, then when he releases his judgments, he releases all of the bad judgments on the blood of Jesus, because it took it all. And he releases all of his good judgments on us, because we become Jesus. Because when he died, he paid for everything. When he died, he took every bad judgment upon us. And when he rose, he gave us the power and the ability to receive every good judgment. And so when you are under that, then when Jesus says, when judgment comes, it's good. Because it's actually going to release, it is, it is revealing who God is. So, I want I'm going to say a a, a little sentence here. If you have a piece of paper, you should write it down. Because when we see the way the earth rejoices in 1 Chronicles to his judgments, this is what we understand. God's judgments are an expression of his goodness and everlasting love. God's judgments are an expression of his goodness and everlasting love. Because that verse I said, for he comes to judge the earth, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. So when he is actually bringing his judgments, what he is doing is he is ruling a verdict over you and he is releasing your rewards. And so that, that is actually the perspective that we should take on judgment from God. Now, are there instances in the Bible that judgment is released and it's not very good? Yes. But we don't have time to get into all of that, but every single time it was God's desire to give mercy, but it was because there was no payment for that, that he had to release those things. God never wants to release destruction and terror and, and devastation but because of the accuser accusing us, there has to be judgments released. And that, but that is why he had to send Jesus, so that he could give a reason every single time. So we need to change our mind on judgment. Jesus showed that with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus showed the way he treated people. Jesus showed that the heart of the Father was always for mercy. So... You might be sitting here going, okay, so if the angels are holding back judgment, but it's good, why are they holding it back then? What's that all about? Well, the judgments are actually good that he's holding back. But the question is, it says that I can't pour those out until we've sealed the servants of God. Now, instead of trying to walk us slowly through it, I'm just going to jump you ahead, tell you where I'm going, and then we'll backtrack and figure it out. <laughs> this is what I propose he's saying here. He's saying, I want to release my judgments. We're actually are going to bring righteous and goodness. They're going to be expressions of my goodness and my love. And I'm going to release them on the earth. But... I am going to use my people to do it. Because we are the manifestation of Jesus in heaven, right? And so he says, I am going to release judgment through my people. But my people have to be sealed on their foreheads, which is their minds, so that they'll have the mind of Christ. Because you can't release the heart and the judgments of God until you think like him. And so he is going to, the 144,000, not a real number, it's a symbolic number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000, which in the Hebrew understanding was basically limitless. It's the apostolic anointing multiplied to infinity. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to multiply who I am into my people so that they will have my mind and my perspective, and I'm going to release my judgments on the earth, which are going to bring people to righteousness, and it's actually a good thing. Okay. Now let's backtrack, and I'll show you. In uh, Isaiah one twenty six, listen to this. Isaiah's prophesying here, and he says, I will restore deliverers or judges. In most translations, it'll say judges. Now, to be honest, according to... Like, Brian Simmons, when he translates it, he says, truthfully, delivers would almost be a better word than judges. But we'll use judges in this context, okay? I will restore judges as in former times, and your wise counselors as at the beginning. Only then will you be called the righteous city and the faithful city. Yes, Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant converts with righteousness. This, that is Isaiah 1, verse 26 through 27. This is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet. This is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet because in the book of Judges, it speaks of the judges over Israel of how Israel would fall away from sin and a judge would be brought forth and they would actually bring the people out of sin back into righteousness and into the blessings of God. And they were the judges. And Isaiah is saying, God, is, God prophesied this and Isaiah wrote it down. He was saying, I'm going to bring them back like they were in the days before. I'm going to bring them forth. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. In Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6, Then I saw thrones, and those who sat on them were given the authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They had refused to worship with wild beasts or its images and did not have their foreheads or hands marked by the wild beast. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and they will reign as kings with him a thousand years. Daniel 7, verse 22, He handed judgment over to the saints of the Most High, and dominion was given to the holy ones of the Most High. Then the time came when the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Don't you realize that we, the holy ones, will judge the universe? If the unbelieving world is under your jurisdiction, you should be fully competent to settle these trivial lawsuits among yourselves. For surely you know that we will one day judge angels, let alone these everyday matters. Um, you see every single, he's saying you're going to judge the universe, you're going to judge angels God's prophesying I'm going to raise up a people that are going to be judges like in the old days Uh, uh, he's saying in, in Revelation 20 we'll see he's setting up and he's showing they're going to be put on thrones to judge and so what is what is this talking about we see these four angels holding back these judgments, holding back these things on the earth. And this fifth angel with the seal, it's a, the, the seal of God, not descending, but ascending from the east. This is Jesus. He has authority over these angels. He is called the rising star of the east. It is uh, a Jesus is always shown coming out of the east. The east is always shown his blessings and good things coming out of it. And we see this angel coming out of the east, and he's telling these other angels, you guys wait for a, wait for a while until we get our servants sealed with, this, with the seal of God. Now, you notice that everybody wants to talk about the mark of the beast, but not as many people want to talk about the seal of God. And they are different. Think about it. A mark would have been something either inscribed or burnt or tattooed or something like that. And a mark is usually referred to a slave or ownership. Right? And we see, and every time we see the beast rising out of the sea, it's the sinfulness of man, and it's the fleshly desires. And we... And it's put on your forehead and your hands because it's the thoughts of the world and the actions of, and the fruits of the flesh. But then we see the seal of God. Now a seal is different. A seal is different than a mark. A seal would, you know how they would stamp a seal on a letter coming from a king? And what would it do? It would be a symbol of authority and power. And it's Sealing us on our foreheads, which is what it's our mind. It's our thoughts. It is the headship of Christ So a lot of people go oh 144,000 that's a seal so that they won't get the Judgments. I don't think it's a seal of protection. I think it's a seal of power They could have been marked with the seal uh, with marked with God, but they weren't they were sealed What he is showing is i'm going to take these people that have my thoughts and my minds and have, been, have come into the fullness that I have for them and have renewed their minds, and I'm going to seal them with the power and authority to release the judgment over the earth and that it will bring forth righteousness, peace, and joy. I think that's cool. And so think about it. Like, let's delve in it just a little bit more it's put, why is the seal on your forehead? Okay, we kind of, we get the basic thing, oh, it's your mind, it's your thoughts. But it is your mind, it is your thoughts. You need the mind of Christ. You need your mind renewed. Jesus was crucified on the hill of Golgotha, which means the hill of the skull. The hill of the skull, Jesus pierced the the hill of the skull with the cross of sacrifice. And the cross needs to pierce your mind as well. You need the cross. You need to be pierced with the mind of Christ. And you need to die to the thoughts and the processes of the world. And you need the mind of Christ in you. And because you can't release, think about this. Let's just take it down here a little bit. Let's say you got saved yesterday, okay? All right, let's say you got saved yesterday and you've been living in the world with its thought processes, with its mindsets, and with its motives, and you got saved yesterday. I don't think it would be a good idea for if you got saved yesterday for you to start releasing the judgments of God on people, (laughs) right? Pretty sure that would be bad, okay? Okay? Because you need your mind renewed. You need the four horsemen to come into your life. You need to be purified. You need to be cleansed. And you need to get the mind of Christ. And that does take time. So, he is saying, I'm going to seal these people on their foreheads. And we won't have time this week. But, Probably next week, hopefully next week, we'll actually go through the 12 tribes mentioned of the 144,000, because 144,000, like I said, is 12 times 12, which is the apostolic number, times 1,000, which in the Hebrew, they, they, their understanding was 1,000 was basically as high as you can go. They're like, why would you want to go any higher? That's basically infinite, right? But 144,000, and it's 12,000 out of each tribe. And when you go through those tribes, and you look at the meanings of their name, it is actually the process of walking through your mind being renewed in Christ. Because in the New Jerusalem, later in Revelation, the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, and guess what the gates are named? These these 12 uh, tribes of Israel. Because you have to walk through that gate in your process of going and becoming the new Jerusalem. Right? And it's really interesting. There's like two tribes are actually removed and they've added other things. It's not in the normal uh, format and uh, listing the way it is in the rest of the Bible. There's all sorts of really interesting things. But we don't have time for that. <laughs> but, but this is what I kind of want to bring us back to. We see in verse 9, it talks about after this, that I looked and behold in front of me was the vast multitude, a multitude so huge that no one could count, made of of victorious ones, right? And they they are the ones that um, have washed their robes white. Here you have two things. You have Jesus telling these four angels... I need you to hold back these things. And as it goes on, we see the climax of this whole experience. We have the 144,000, and then we have the multitude that have been washed in his, and they're all praising God before the Lamb, and they serve him for a thousand years, for infinity, basically. So it's kind of like you have one through six of the seals and it's building. It's going, you gotta be purified. You gotta be, you know, renewed. You gotta die to these things. Boom. And then man, you gotta cry out for God to pour out his spirit. And then he wants to shake everything in your world and shake everything that's been set up. And he wants to bring you a new heavens and a new earth. And then he wants to bring forth the judgments. He wants you to rule and reign with him. And 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 then he wants you to be priests and kings and worship him for eternity. It's like this big climax of this is why And this is the purpose of all of it. It's like John is saying, look at all of this that's happening. I need to take like an extra chapter here and show you what the goal is. And so here's the goal. And what's interesting is, Jesus is not going to come back. Jesus is not going to fulfill his plan, not because of an antichrist, not because of the mark of the beast, not because of things getting really bad, but he is going to fulfill his plan because of the number of people that are sealed with the mind of Christ and with the multitude of people who have been washed clean. Let me, let me work on that, okay? He is saying, my plan is contingent on my people. Because he is not coming back to marry a broken-down, helpless church to save us. He's coming back to marry a pure and holy bride. He's coming back to marry a bride that is equally yoked with him. He's coming back because we are in the image of him. We have been transformed into the likeness of him. And so what he's saying is, okay you people that are following me, he is actually, he tells them, hold back the winds until the number of those are sealed with my seal. That means you getting renewed in the mind of Christ is directly related to him finishing the plan for the world. And, and, those who are, there are two groups, the 144,000 that are sealed and those that have been purified, their robes in white because of the blood of the Lamb. He is saying, until I get my multitude of people, until I get my people sealed on their foreheads and they, are being, they have walked through the transformation into my image, I'm not coming back. I'm not, so all of your predictions and all of Gog and Magog and all these things, I don't care what interpretation you have of Revelation. It says it right there. We ain't doing nothing until these people are in the kingdom. In um, Jude, there's only one chapter. I'd tell you the chapter, but there's only one. In Jude, uh, verse 14 through 15 says, look, here comes the Lord, Yahweh, in myriads of holy ones to execute judgment against all and to inf- conf- uh, convict each one of... Oh, man, I can't read. This is weird. Convict each one of them for their ungodly deeds and for the terrible words that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The main thing I want to say, say is, look, it says, Look, here comes the Lord Yahweh, or let me translate, Jesus, Here comes Jesus in his myriads of holy ones. Now, here's the deal. Um, uh, In a lot of your translations, it'll say, in holy myriads of himself or uh, by or something like that. There's different translations. But uh, the most common one is, the lord is coming with 10,000s or with 10,000s with 10,000s okay that's what most translations will say but the greek word big long one en e n okay bear with me the greek word is en e n and it is translated in as in in 1870 times in the new testament but they decided to not translate it that way. In. The true, the, the right translation should be in. Like he's in you. Right? The Lord, but most translations will say the Lord is coming with. Like, hey, let's all join hands we're going with each other. But that word, en, in the Greek, in the Bible is translated 1,870 times as I-N, in, in people. So what that is saying is, in Jude, it is saying Jesus is coming back in his people, in the myriads, which basically means an innumerable amount of people. It's the same thing we saw in Revelation. He is saying... I want to come forth. I want to be revealed to the world in you. In myriads and myriads of people that look like me. So, I would just say this. When I read that and see how God's plan, He's, he's waiting. He's waiting for us to get the revelation of who He is. And He's waiting for us to go out there and do something with it. He's saying it's contingent on you. Not on performance or works, but on us living out the fullness of our destiny in him. That's what he's calling us to. And, and this whole picture of all of these seals are painting the end result of, man, we're all going to worship him around his throne. We're all going to be pure and holy myriads of people in the multitude of people an innumerable amount of people are going to be for Him, pure and holy because those were sealed and marked with the mind of christ and walked through the fullness of his desire for them and brought forth the judgments the righteousness of god onto this earth We, we i'm running out of time but I want, us to see, I want you to get this, how important this is for you. This is a, quite a different eschatology than most people are going to have. But I read this and I go, oh my gosh, his desire is to bring forth deliverers like in the days of old. His plan is to bring forth a people that can rule and reign with him. And he is holding back a period of time. He is holding back the winds until we get a hold of what he is doing. And then when we get a hold of that, we are going to bring forth the kingdom. He's wanting to pour out more and more. But he is he's waiting on us. We have, at times, over. We've got, oh man, just get people saved. Just get people saved. And ah, maybe throw them in Sunday school. No. Get people saved and get them into the kingdom and get them transformed into the reality that God has for them because the journey has just begun. They need to be sealed with that seal on their foreheads. They need to get their minds renewed. There is so much more. And you play a big part. For too long we've been given the lie of clergy and laymen. Oh man, yeah, he's a pastor and we sit in the seat and give him money and sometimes we help out with Sunday school. If you're a really fervent Christian. No, you're all called to be a kingdom of kings and priests. You're all called, just like what Dawson is talking about, in every single day of your life, you're called to bring forth the revelation and the unveiling of Jesus everywhere you go. You're called to live with authority and with power. You're called to be sealed with his seal that you can bring forth the judgments of the kingdom to this world. You're called to bring Jesus to this world. That's what you're called to do. And this is painting the picture of I want to fulfill the prophecy. I want to pour this stuff out. That's what you're called to do. There's a lot. There's a lot more that we will get into. We'll get into the 144,000. That's a really fun. We'll get into chapter eight and the seventh seal and how it unfolds the the angels and the trumpets and the bowls and all these things but this particular one i'm like oh man as soon as i started going over i'm like well this is going to take all night (laughs) and i may not have covered it very good sometimes i mess up but um yeah so it may take you some time let that sit for a while (laughs) Let that sit in you. Look at those verses. Research this yourself. But every single step of the way, it's always, it's always Jesus is the center. And when Jesus is in you, then it's always him coming out. He's like, I want to bring heaven to earth. I don't want to just get you up here. So that's all, that's all I'm going to say right now. Let me pray with you guys. And okay, we don't have an ending song, but we'll just pray and we'll de- be dismissed. How does that sound? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on every single person here. God, I pray that you would renew our minds. That we would get the mind of Christ so that we could actually release you into this world accurately so that we could be the unveiling of Jesus so that we could fulfill what you paid such a great price for. So Lord, I pray that maybe this didn't all make sense and maybe this will take time, but Lord, I pray that you would take these words and that you would take the truth of your word and you would set it inside of us and you would make it grow like a garden and that it would just grow more and more and that maybe one day we'd wake up and get it. But Jesus, pour out your spirit. This week, I pray for people that they would have encounters with you and with encounters with other people. That they would get, every time they open the Bible, they would see how they are supposed to apply it to their lives and that it's not, oh, trudging along trying to make it, but it's the joy of the kingdom. God, fill us with your presence. Let us worship you every single day. Jesus, we want you to come back. And so we want to go out into the world. We want to go out into the world, and we want to bring the gospel because we know the sooner we go out and the sooner we spread the word and the sooner we bring the revelation of Jesus, the sooner you will come back for us to marry us victorious and mighty. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Bless everyone tonight. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.